now and again, I like to start with something funny. And uh, I heard something funny this week. I was with uh, some of my pastor friends that I'm in a coaching network with. And uh, one of them just told something I thought was really funny. I hope you guys uh, do too. And just remember, I have family here. So even if you don't think it's funny, whenever I get to what you think is the punchline, just laugh. I'd appreciate that. But uh, the, this, this pastor is known for kind of preaching uh, long sermons. I know you guys don't know a pastor like that at all, but uh, this, this one pastor, he, he had a, a habit of, of preaching long sermons. And one Sunday, right in the middle of his message, this guy gets up and starts walking out. And so this preacher just stops right in the middle of his message and asks the guy, hey, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to get a haircut. And the pastor said, well, why didn't you get a haircut before you came to church this morning? He said, because when I came in this morning, I didn't need a haircut. <laughs> so, <laughs> you get it? He's been in church so long, he needs a hair. Okay. Um, I read a report this week that said four out of every ten millennials claims to have no religious affiliation. Four out of every ten. Does that surprise you? You know, it really shouldn't. And uh, just so no one thinks I'm, I'm beating on, uh, on millennials, I'm not. Uh, you know, one generation is the reflection of the previous generation. And so our children, you know, both of, both of my kids are millennials, and uh, they're a reflection of how I've raised them. One generation is the reflection of the previous generation. And uh, I think one of the things this means at least, at least one of the things it means, is that many of us who believe, and I say us, I'm, I mean the, uh, you know, the busters or the Gen Xs, you, you know, the parents of the millennials. So not just us in this room, but us who are parents, you know, across the board. Those of us raising millennials, uh, and, and yet we believe in God. I think what it, it may say is that our kids grew up with parents that had the tradition of God, but didn't really follow him. You know, like we believe in God, we just don't live like we do. And, and I think what millennials are really saying today is not, not that they aren't interested in God. I, I think what they are saying is, I'm not interested in the tradition of God. Like, I'm not going to be a Catholic because my parents were Catholics. Or I'm not going to be Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or any other brand of a Christian. I'm not going to be that only because my parents were. I think what they want is some answers to their questions. Now, here's the struggle with that. I think the struggle is many millennials today, and, and hey, l listen, this is not just a millennial thing either. That This is maybe across the board for all generations. Because did you know that the most unchurched generation alive today are senior adults? 
But you don't really think about that, do you? You just see an old person, and you just think, well, sure, he loves Jesus. He's an old man. Don't all men, all old men love Jesus? And don't all grandmas love Jesus? No, they, they don't. I, I think what's happened is that people have questions, and we've just done a terrible job of answering the questions. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my own faith tradition that I would have questions about God and about faith, about the Bible, and, and I would get answers like, well, the, the Bible says it. Well, just what does the Bible say about my question? Um, and I think millennials, again, like all generations, they have questions, and when they bring serious questions, they get Sunday school answers. Answers that maybe parents or other adults have been hanging on to all of their lives and they, they just use those sort of flippantly. And so what happens is millennials, at least a generation of people, have, have walked away from the church. And they're like, well, see, there are no answers here. So they've decided that there, there are no answers to their spiritual questions. Well, what does it have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. Um. Charles Dickens, one of my favorite writers, uh, he, he wrote once, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. That's usually what Christmas is for people. It's the best of times or it's the worst of times. And, and usually what that means is that for people who, who think that Christmas is the best of times, what that means is they really love the sentimental things about Christmas. Man, I do. I love the sentimental things. I'm just going to tell you right now, I love Santa Claus and Christmas trees and Christmas decorations and all that stuff. And I'm sure that there's someone either here in this room right now or somebody listening to this message on our podcast is saying, oh, no, it's just not about Santa Claus. It's about Jesus is the reason for the season. And man, I, it just drives me nuts. I, I, hate, I hate hearing that stuff. Man, I, I love the, the sentimental Things around Christmas. And I know that Jesus is the reason for the season and, and, and all of that. But, you know, the sentimental stuff is fine. It's just not enough. It's not all that there is. So, so then for those who look at Christmas and they think it's the worst of times, they're typically the ones who don't have the sentimental things. They, they don't like how they're spending Christmas or the right people are not there or they're not getting the right stuff. Uh, and, you know, when you get older, it's not just about getting the right stuff, but it's being able to give the right stuff. So Christmas feels like it's, it's lacking, like there's something missing, like it's just, it, it's wrong. And so if you, if you have the... The best of times mentality about Christmas, but you think that it's just about the sentimental things, then you're missing it. And what you're also in danger of, uh, in danger of is that if those things go away, well, then so does the sentiment. And so what is normally the best of times has become the worst of times. I think what we've done 
even though I say I love the Santa Claus and, and all that stuff, I, I think what we've done is we've, we've decided that, well, maybe, and we wouldn't dare say it because we're afraid of going to hell. <laughs> so we wouldn't come out and say it, but in the back of our minds, maybe we think, well, maybe the story of Jesus is kind of like other fairy tales around Christmas. Like it's a once upon a time story. It's made up. And even if it's not, you could never prove it. But that's not true. I'm going to say more about this in a, in a few minutes when we really get into the message. But, you know, the Christian faith has never, uh, uh, only in the last hundred years or so, and maybe you can go back to around the 1500s, and, and find something similar. But only for about a hundred years have people said that Christianity is just a faith where you just blindly believe it. The first Christians did not believe in Jesus because they read it in a book. The Bible. They didn't have the Bible for the first 350 years. Now, the first Gospels are written just a few months, maybe a decade at the most, after the life of Jesus. But, I mean, Christians didn't have the Bible where they, had, they could actually access it the way we have today until about 350 A.D. They were putting their faith in something that they believed could be proven So I'm here to tell you today that you don't have to believe in Jesus just because your parents told you so. Or because some other authority figure in your life said, well, the Bible says it's true, so it's true, so you just believe it. You, you can ask it questions. And, and the Gospel of Luke is proof of that. Remember how we talked about this last week? You remember how Luke begins his gospel? He's talking to a friend named Theophilus, and he says, Theo, listen, others have taken up the, the chore or the task of writing down the story about Jesus. But then he says, and this is you know, my, my loose translation, he says, but I've done the research. I've done the interviews. And what I'm telling you about Jesus in this gospel, this, this story of good news, it's verifiable truth. And so you can ask it the questions. And that's what we're doing. In this series, all through December, we're asking it the questions. We're looking for the evidence. Can I believe in Jesus? Can I believe that the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, not in the year zero, but probably more like four to six BC, is really the Son of God, the Messiah? Well, the answer is yes, but there's evidence for that. So let's talk about the evidence. You good? You with me? So, so last week, when we started talking about the evidence, we talked about two things. We talked about... Um, the historical context 
and we talked about the reliability of the Gospels. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a couple more things this morning, a couple, a couple more evidence packages, but I'm going to go back to historical context for just a minute. And before I do that, I want to read our focus text, which comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And this is the traditional Christmas story. But I want you to listen to it today, not like um, through, through or, or with the ears of sentiment. I want you to listen to it and maybe hear it the way Theophilus would have heard it, an unbeliever. A guy who asks questions and wants the answers. Uh, and maybe you're, you're not an unbeliever. Many of you are not unbelievers. But I just want you to hear this in a different way. It's packed full of evidence. So let me just dive in. Luke says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You know what that was for? They were registering for taxes. Listen, the Roman Empire didn't care anything about Judea. Uh, and they would have called it Palestine. They named it after Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines. To them, Judea, Palestine, it's just like the armpit of the world for them. They didn't care. What they wanted was they wanted to register people so they know how many people there are so that they could receive taxes from them. Taxes that would build up the local economy, but also to go and fund whatever projects they have going on in Rome, which typically meant building an army to expand the Roman Empire. This census uh, was first taken while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was heavy with child. Betrothed just means that they're engaged. They're promised to each other. It's everything in a marriage commitment except the sexual act that consummates the marriage. To split up would take a divorce. That's how married they are. So it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn child, a son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, which means listen. Listen! I mean, he, it's a thundering sort of voice. See, some of us, we have this cleaned up, sentimental idea of what this whole experience was like. Just, just think, with the shepherds alone, we have the wrong image of them. Like tonight, we'll have some shepherds, and I haven't, I haven't seen their, their, um, their dress rehearsal. But I would imagine, and Annie and my right are their shepherds. And, and they'll be cute. They'll be little boys. They'll come in with, uh, you know, maybe a towel over their head, and they're wearing their bathrobe, and maybe they have, you know, some kind of walking stick. And so when we think about the shepherds, we just think, oh, aren't they so sweet? We just love these shepherds. This Christmas story is just wonderful. 
Um, let, me, let me tell you something. The shepherds were the cowboys of their day. They cussed too much. They drank too much. Um, they were rough and tumble. They were, they were also outlaws. They were on the outside. Their, their job made them ritually unclean. So they were social outcasts. People didn't want to hang out with them because these are the guys that hang out at the biker bar. And their job made them ritually unclean, so they were not allowed to go and worship. And now they are the ones receiving the greatest news that the world has ever been told. And the angel said, don't, don't be afraid, but listen. For I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. You know what that means? That means including you. Including these these." These biker shepherds, the hell shepherds, I don't know. They, these tough guys, you get to be included. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you, which these are GPS concord, uh, coordinates. This is how you find them. This is what you look for. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, which are grave clothes. That's a sign because that's just odd. There's a baby there that's wrapped in the same clothes you'd put a dead person in because you know, these are poor people. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger, a horse's trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And this is, this is a great part right here. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They didn't just say, ah, pfft, that's pretty cool, special effects, but I don't know. This whole God's come to us thing, I don't think so. They didn't just dismiss it out of hand. Nor did they say, oh, wow, this is such a spectacular, supernatural thing. It all has to be true. Let's believe it. Instead, they said, let's go see for ourselves. And that's what you should do when it comes to your faith. You should check it out for yourself. You should ask it the questions. And it's okay to ask the questions. You don't have to be afraid of what the answers are going to be. So let's talk about the historical context. If you're writing notes, that's the first fill-in in your notes. So if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down anyway. Number one, it's historical context. That, that's the evidence. And I want to show you something through coins. And some of you have seen me do this before. Others of you haven't. But I, I want you to, to, to check this out. Let, let me read the first two verses to you again. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was uh, governor of Syria. So what does this have to do with the historical context? Well, take a look at these coins. You see this good-looking guy right here? He's not that good-looking, is he? You know who that is? It's Julius Caesar. Say Julius Caesar. Uh, one of the greatest emperors in the Roman Republic. And of course, 
uh, he ended the Roman Republic and became the supreme dictator and emperor. He was, he was so dictatorial that in 44 B.C., members of his Senate assassinated him about 50 years before the birth of Jesus, okay? So, so keep that part in mind. After he was murdered, the Roman Empire fell apart. Up to that point, they claimed what they called... And by the way, how many of you like history? Just a show of hands. All right, those of you who don't like history, you're going to hate this part. But it, it doesn't last long. And I think if you don't like history, it's just because you never heard it in an interesting way. So get, give it a chance here. After Julius Caesar was murdered, the Roman Empire fell apart. And th- there, was, there was chaos all over the Roman warfare. Tribal warfare, uh, or I'm sorry, all over the Roman Empire. There, there was tribal warfare uh, everywhere. You have to remember that Rome, the, the empire, made up conquered people. So when everything begins to fall apart, all those who were in the red tribe got together with other people from the red tribe. And the blue tribe got together. And the yellow tribe got together. And people started to ban again. And, and so everything is just falling apart. The economy was collapsing. People were worried about the stability and the prosperity of the Roman Empire. What Will it ever be good again? And listen, there are two things that every government offers its people. Stability and prosperity. I mean, we hear about that every two and four years, right? From our, our own leaders. They want to give us stability and prosperity. Okay, so here's what happened. The next... Roman emperor was Octavian. Say Octavian. Very good. He took the name Augustus. Same name we just read. He took the name Augustus, which means holy and revered. Now, this was a title that was reserved only for the gods. Okay, so follow me here. Octavian was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Okay, got that? the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had no male heirs. So Octavian became the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Still with me? Now check this out. A rumor was created about Julius Caesar when he died that a star, a comet, arose from the earth, and Julius Caesar joined the place of the gods. So, so, so think about this. He's a god, right? And make him the son. God. I know Caesar's boy, his adopted son. That's the star. That's the comet. So if, if you were living, say, and so every time you did business, every time you pulled a coin out of your pocket, you handed them a coin that represented some amount of money, but it also had the picture of your emperor, lord, and God, if it was a Julius Caesar coin. Now if it's an Octavian coin, it's a coin of the son of God. All right. This is the front of the coin back of the coin. The wording on the back, this right here, it says divine filius, which means divine son. So what does all this mean? What's happened here? Julius Caesar 
and then Augustus, Octavian Augustus, they've claimed divine right. So now not only is the emperor your emperor, your leader, he's your God. They're saying that Octavian was not a mere man. He is God, and he governs the world as an agent of the gods. And so when he speaks, when he makes a decree, that's as good as if the gods themselves delivered it. And so now Rome has spiritual authority over the people. So now not only do you give them your patriotism, you give them your religious devotion as well. And what Augustine was offering, you let me be your king and your God, I'll give you a stable country, and I'll make you prosperous. Pax Romana, Roman peace. So do you think that it's just a coincidence that when Jesus was born, while this guy is alive, this guy is the emperor when Jesus was born. That's what Luke tells us. Do you think it's a coincidence that a star appeared in Bethlehem? A comet, remember Julius' story? Do you think it's a coincidence that a star appeared over Bethlehem that messengers announced that the Son of God is born and the angels proclaim not Pax Romana, Roman peace, but peace on earth. Everywhere human beings are, the star and the Son of God and the bringer of peace, those were all descriptions of Octavius. This was God undermining the Roman government. This is God saying, I have sent my son to be the true and living God. And these men, Julius Caesar, Octavian, etc., they're real people. These are people in history books. You can go look these people up. They're not only mentioned in William Shakespeare plays. These guys were leaders. And here's what Luke is doing. He is telling us that Jesus was a real man, that the stories about Jesus are not made up fables. These are not once upon a time stories. He gives us names by telling us when this happened and who was the ruler. He's telling us when this happened, who the players were, so that you can what? Fact check them. Listen, when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about made up stuff. We're talking about a real man who lived in a real time in history. That's historical context. Now i got to work really fast. <laughs> Let's talk about the next set of evidence. It's the eyewitness accounts. Say that with me. The eyewitness accounts. Eyewitnesses of what? Not the birth of Jesus. Listen, the birth of Jesus, that's talked about later on. That's, that's not an after the fact. But listen, whenever you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can go all the way to the ends of those Gospels, start with the passion stories, because what those evangelists were telling first were the stories about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus resurrecting from the grave three days later. Everything that comes before the passion narratives just answers the question, who is the man hanging on the cross? 
So what are the eyewitnesses of? They are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Okay. You can't talk about Christmas without talking about Easter. So let's talk about it. When the res, uh, with the resurrection, what, what do we need to know? Well, there's a lot to know, but we don't have a lot of time. So let me give you two or three things. First, we need to know that Jesus was dead. I don't, don't laugh or don't look at me like, what? Of course he was dead. Listen, not everyone believed he was dead. There, there's always been a theory out there. Well, it, it's about 400 years old. It's called the swoon theory. The, the theory goes that when Jesus was crucified, he, he didn't really die on the cross. He was just beaten nearly to death. Once they put him in the tomb, it was dark, it was cool, it was damp. So after about three days, he revived. And so he just came out of the tomb himself. There, there are lots of problems with that. One is that these Roman soldiers were really good at what they did. People didn't survive this. Most people didn't survive the beating. Certainly they didn't survive the crucifixion. But then if you can get past those two things... There was no way, because, and we'll get to this in just a minute, but the disciples believed that Jesus was alive again. Not that he had had the snot beaten out of him, and now he's doing okay. None, none, of, the, none of the disciples look at Jesus and say, oh my gosh, Jesus, my friend, you, you're beaten up. So we need to get you to a hospital. We need to get you somewhere where we can bandage you up, somewhere we can take care of you. No, what were the disciples proclaiming? That Jesus was dead and now he's alive. There is no way Jesus could have convinced them, hey, um, I know I look pretty bad, um, but I'm, I'm okay now. I'm not your crucified Lord. I'm just your Lord that was beaten up really badly. Let's go out and propagate this lie. Jesus was dead. Pilate agreed he was dead. His followers agreed that he was dead. The Jewish leaders who took Jesus before Pilate to have him crucified, they agreed he was dead. Jesus was dead. Then you, you need to know that the tomb was empty. Now, there, there are some, some stories or some theories that kind of grow up around that. And so what some people, some critics have said through the years is, um, this is really simple. They just went to the wrong tomb. They're in a graveyard. There must be a lot of graves there. So just clearly they went to the wrong one. They, they went to tomb 45 when Jesus was really buried in tomb 47. The problem with that is that everyone agreed that the tomb was empty. Pilate received official word where men who would lose their lives for falsifying documents had heard and believed that Jesus was dead. Now the tomb he was buried in was empty. The religious leaders who had Jesus killed, they agreed that the tomb was empty. Think about it. They would have loved nothing more than to, than to say Hey, guys, you're at tomb 45. 
We're at 47. This is where Jesus was buried. They would have drugged Jesus' body out and showed him to everyone. Because listen, it was in their best interest to prove that Jesus was really dead. Because he had said that he would live again. That's what the prophecies were. And that's what the disciples are preaching and proclaiming later. If they could have, if they could have provided the body of Jesus, they could have ended all this nonsense right here and right now, but they didn't produce a body because they didn't have the body. Because the body's gone, it's been resurrected. There is uh, there's something in historical documents that scholars look at to see if a story is true or if it leans more to legend. And, of course, scholars have done the same thing with the Gospels. And so, if you hear a story like Julius Caesar, where his death, there's a comet and all of that stuff. When they look at that, everything about Julius Caesar's life is up and to the right. Everything just looks great. He's a hero. He's a god. Everything's great. The followers who are around him, not the ones who killed him, but... The, the others, they just loved him, and, and everything is right. It's too right. It lets you know that the story is either made up, or they've tried to make Julius Caesar look good, or whoever the figure is in, in history. So scholars have gone to the Gospels to see if there are parts of the story that just looks too good to be true. And one of the things that some of the greatest critics of Scripture have not been able to, to answer and, and put aside is the fact that it was women who found the empty tomb. Why does that matter? In the first century, women were considered untruthful. They couldn't be trusted. Not that they were just straight-out liars necessarily, but because they're the weaker sex. They just can't fight off the devil who might trick them and make them lie like men can do. And so they couldn't, for example, testify in a court of law. If you were making the story of Jesus' resurrection up, you would have never said it was the women who found the empty tomb first. They, they know they're already starting in a hole. They, they know that already there are going to be critics out there that say, well, yeah, it was women who found him. You know, you can't believe what they say. So why in the world would they say that it was women who found the empty tomb? Because that is the way it happened. Why aren't the other disciples there? Because nobody, no, no one is sitting there at 11.59 p.m., waiting on 12 to strike. So it's the third day, and they're just, you know, they're counting down. 10, 9, 8, 7. The tomb's going to open when we get to T minus 0. Nobody's there waiting for the tomb. No one, ex they just thought that Jesus was going to be dead. And then he wasn't. And then the disciples, of the course of that morning, begin to realize what has happened. 
that just like Jesus had told them that he would die, but he would live again, it's really happened. And Jesus didn't just appear to the disciples. Jesus appeared to over 500 people, not, not just over the course of a day, but over a period of 40 days. And, and it's almost like he knew there would, pe- there would be people who say, well, yeah, but when he met with his disciples that first Sunday night, they were in a house, and man, you can make any, you know, there's hidden walls and all kinds of stuff like that. Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days to over 500 people indoors and out of doors, personal conversations, individual conversations, conversations with large groups of people. He'd been resurrected. John, Matthew, Peter, they knew that Jesus was alive. To, to, to me, the greatest eyewitness has to be James. It has to be James. Uh, this, this is my Uncle Duck here in the red sweater. His name's David. I've never called him David in my life, maybe once or twice, but it was by accident or it's because somebody else didn't know that his real name is Duck, which David is his real name, but we call him Duck. It's a long story. I'll tell you some Sunday when he's not here. <laughs> so so uh, Duck is my daddy's brother. There are five of them all together, five brothers. Okay, James... Uh, not, not one of the original 12 disciples, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had half-brothers and sisters because Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, they went on to have other children. In the Gospels, you can see that they thought Jesus was crazy. Literally, they wanted to take him away because he was proclaiming that he was the Messiah. After the resurrection of Jesus... James becomes an ardent follower of Jesus. He became the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, wrote the book called James in the New Testament. Duck, what would it take for Pete, Charles, James, or Mitchell to convince you that they're the Messiah? Nothing, right? There's no way. Because you, you know they're not. So what was the difference in James? He became a believer afterward. He knew that Jesus was alive. He was there when he was killed, buried. And now he had been with him several days after his resurrection. He knew he was alive. And then, then the last piece of evidence, I'll, I'll tie all this in together and we'll, we'll wrap up here. It, it's the changed lives of the disciples. Th- th- think, think about this. All of the 12 disciples, including James, this brother of Jesus, they were all martyred for their faith in Jesus. There's no way, that, and, and these men died horrible deaths. The only one who, who was not just outright murdered was John, and he died on a prison island, the prison island of Patmos. And what was his crime? The same crime of all the other disciples. They were pre- preaching that Jesus had been crucified 
and now he is alive again. They would not die for a lie. Liars make terrible martyrs. They would not given their, have given up their lives for something they knew was not true. One of the best examples, I think, of this is with Peter. You know, if you look at Peter, on the night that Jesus was arrested, what did he do? He denied knowing Jesus. He said he wouldn't. He said, he, he said in the upper room, Lord, even if all of these other disciples, if they run away from you, I will not, I will not leave you. I will not forsake. I'm going to be here. And then three times, he had opportunities to stand up for Jesus to say, I know him. But the third time, he cursed and swore and said, blankety blank, I do not know this man. After the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. They go out into the same streets where Jesus had been arrested, the same leaders who had Jesus arrested. There's a whole crowd of people that knew what had happened to Jesus, and they had heard the story of the empty tomb. And now Peter comes out to set the record straight, and he preaches with a boldness that just was not there before. And he didn't care what happened. He didn't care what they did. He was telling the truth about Jesus. They was dead, and now he's alive. Why would he do that? Because he knew Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. We'll pick up here next week. But what do you do with this? Jenny, uh, Jenny where are you at? Is Jenny in the room? Jenny, would you just come up and play? And the rest of the band, I'm going to do away with the last song. Is that okay? I'm so sorry. I won't do it in the next service. But I, maybe. But I, I want to ask you what you have to say about Jesus. I mean, is that enough? Really, it should be. I mean, that, that doesn't mean that maybe you, you have every... Every special interest question you might have about Jesus answered. Like, did he have brown eyes? Or were they just like a hazelnut color? Or were they kind of greenish blue? Did he have long hair? Did he have short hair? But those things don't really matter, do they? What matters is what you say about him as far as him being the son of God who died on the cross the forgiveness of your sins, was raised three days later. And, and now, and now, if you can believe what the Gospels tell us in John 1:12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. What matters is what you believe about him, but then how you act on that belief. That determines whether or not you become a child of God. So maybe you feel like you need to wait till next week. Maybe you don't. If you feel like you can trust Jesus today as Lord and Savior, now don't you say this prayer with me. You don't have to say it out loud. You can say it in your heart, in your mind. Our God, 
He hears your thoughts. He knows your heart. And he will hear you when you say, Jesus, in the best way I know how, I'm trusting you as my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. Thank you for giving your life for me. And the best way I know how I'm giving you my life to follow you. Now fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit to follow you every day so that I can learn more about you and and learn more about what it means to really follow you. And now just say, Jesus, thank you for loving me and saving me. It's in your great name we pray. But Lord, first, I, I also want to pray for those who are still considering Jesus. I pray that they would take the search seriously because this is a serious matter. And it doesn't just affect the next few decades here in this life, but it affects all of eternity. What we say or what we believe, what we confess about who that baby is in the manger 2,000 years ago determines where we spend eternity. So Lord, once again, we pray over the search. We pray for the answers. Lord, I believe you want us to have the answers. Maybe not to every trivial thing we want to know, but Lord, the answers to the questions that really matter. Lord, we give you the rest of this Christmas season to discovering who Jesus is. And it's in his strong name we pray. And those who agreed said, amen. I want to dismiss us right there.